Boy, we have a lot going on today. London Live brought to you, as always, by our good friends at Winmar, your restoration specialists. If you can get to downtown London, there is sunshine in downtown London, and the snow has not been able to hold up. You know, we might have to start a flowchart or a graph of some kind. Not very mathematical. What would work best? To kind of figure out when snow is going to arrive when we actually call this, okay, from now until the end of March or from now until the end of April, when I walk outside my door, there will be snow there. Here's hoping it's not until the end of April. Because you know what? We're getting awfully close to Groundhog Day. When the groundhog is supposed to decide whether or not winter is right around the corner or whether or not we have six more weeks. What if we haven't had it yet? What does the groundhog do then? Is there a third choice? Does the groundhog have any way to say, you know, uh, more of the same, more of the same, just for what is the sign? It's see the shadow, not see the shadow. Can a groundhog stick out its tongue? Could that be the sign? What about an ear wiggle? I don't know. We might need something like that. Right now, no winter yet. Nobody's hating it. Budgets are being saved at City Hall. Although they do allocate things very well at City Hall for snow removal. And there is always kind of an overflow plan just in case we need that. I think last year we needed that. I probably shouldn't be talking like this, should I? We're going to get dumped on. Yesterday would have been a major storm, but the temperature rises up. We get rain instead. And here we are, January the 8th. Still flowing along fine. Everybody's waiting to see what U.S. President Donald Trump is going to say tonight. In about an hour from now, I want to talk a little bit about what state of emergency can mean in the United States. Atlantic did a very good job detailing some of the things that can go on if, in fact, a president, and you can love Trump, like Trump, hate Trump, it doesn't matter. If you look at the power that exists when a state of emergency is called, there are a lot of laws that have kind of gone by the wayside. You know those ones that come up in London every once in a while where there's some bylaw and it'll come up and it hasn't been touched since 1956. And somebody will find it and that means that someone can't put Christmas decorations within three feet of a bird's nest or whatever it is. It's one of those ones that you should have looked at and said, that's an antiquated law. We need to fix that. There's a lot of state of emergency stuff that is antiquated, yes, but there is no time to change it, especially since the government isn't really running right now in the United States. So they can't do much. So if the president, and it doesn't matter who it is, could have been Barack Obama, could have been George W. Bush, could have been Bill Clinton, could have been Ronald Reagan. A lot of things go back even before them. Now, we have seen other presidents use state of emergency for different reasons. But in an hour from now, I want to run down some of the things. Take control of the Internet is one. That's kind of a new thing. That doesn't go back to 1956. That's a much newer thing. But that's something that can happen under a state of emergency. The power that exists is pretty wild and almost unnerving. 
So that comes up in an hour. Between now and then, we'll talk about some happier things. Also on the show today, Jay Stanford, Director of Environmental Programs and Solid Waste with the City of London. We'll look ahead to 2019 and some of the projects that are going to exist. They are going before committees today, and they'll be talking a little bit about Ontario and the government and the environmental plan that has kind of drifted down to London and other municipalities. What does this mean Is Jay okay with what he sees in that? Because there are some changes. Remember, we went through a liberal government where they were going to leave their legacy of green, and in a way they have. Drive down the 401 or the 402 far enough, you see a lot of windmills. I don't know if they're doing much. Uh, Certainly none of us are seeing drops in the amount that we pay for electricity, but that's what they wanted to leave us with. Remember Dalton McGinty? He wanted that legacy. Every leader gets into a legacy. There should actually be a rule in place. Speaking of rules, as soon as a leader starts talking about legacy, give them the boot. They're gone. No, 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 no. When this becomes about you, you have to go. As soon as this becomes at all about you, you're not doing your job for the people anymore. Oh, I got to think about my legacy. What I'm going to be known for for the rest of my life Yeah, gone, bye, those words were spoken again, let's have an election, I would be in. We don't need legacy stuff. We're also going to talk about something that shows how classrooms are evolving. It used to be you went to school for reading, writing, and arithmetic. I always look back at the number of time all of us spent going B, B, B in cursive. That was such a waste. How did we not see texting coming? But waste of time. Now, classrooms, they're a lot different, and we're going to speak with Aaron Much, who is a learning coordinator in environmental education with the Thames Valley District School Board, and we're going to be talking about a classroom that doesn't even have walls that will house students. I guess it, it, parts of it have walls. They're different walls. But for the most part, they're out doing stuff in the community for an entire semester, not just for a class. This is not just, well, I'm going to take the outdoor class this semester. These are grade 10 students, and their entire semester is this particular program, the Environmental Leaders Project. It's fascinating to see what they've done, and I love it. I love what that part of the education system is doing. We are also going to talk about optimism of Canadians. We'll do that in about three minutes from now. But even before that, I want to maybe start a flowchart or a graph. Not really great with mathematics. I don't know what one would work in this particular case either. But the number of companies and the number of things that we make use of on a daily basis that are getting rid of words... Have you ever tried, or have you recently tried to go through a self-checkout? There are fewer and fewer words at the self-checkout. There's a big word called pay, because they want you to do that. That one's still in there. But a lot of words are disappearing, and it's easy to see why. We want to make things universal. Therefore, anyone who speaks any language can walk up and figure out how to make something work. You don't have to learn English first. English is not an easy language to learn. So if you can do it without, then that's good. That's a great thing. For most of us who are used to just looking for the word, it's, ah, what is, does this basket mean something? What about this thing with three heads? Should I be pushing that now? And it takes a while at self-checkouts that have fewer and fewer English words to figure out what's going on. I think that's lettuce. Let me push that. 
but MasterCard has decided to remove their name from their logo. And people have pointed to Apple, Nike, Target, or Target, which we no longer have, as being companies that have done away with words that never, in some cases, Nike's case, never had words. They just had their symbol, the swoosh. And now MasterCard's going to do the same thing. Their logo will remain the same. But for more than 50 years, they've had the word MasterCard. Now it's going away. Now you have those circles and the thing in, in between. That's what's going to be there. I think we're going to see a lot more of this. Is this the end of the English language for some reasons? You know, they say there, there's, a, there's a commercial we have running on 980 CFPL right now, which talks about kids being able to communicate entirely in emojis. I don't know if that's where we're headed. I don't think it's necessarily a great thing. Pineapple, pointy star, red hat. I don't know what anyone is saying. But this is kind of where we're going. There's going to be a lot more universality because of moves like this. MasterCard won't be the last company to do it. Are you saving or are you spending a lot on a MasterCard right now? Are you saving money? We're not going to talk New Year's resolutions when London Live continues, but what we are going to discuss is optimism for 2019 and whether or not Canadians are doing some saving, what goals are for Canadians. We'll talk with a Londoner who no longer lives in London, but he'll be happy to join us back in this part of the world. Comes up next on London Live and Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Microphone, happy face, large light at the end of the tunnel. Could we do a whole radio show like that? Would you understand what I was talking about? There, what I meant was, you're listening to the radio, it's an optimistic story, and it's about Canadians. Oh, I should have had Canada flag. So, microphone, happy face, Canada flag, light at the end of the tunnel. If we spoke in only emojis, that would mean that Canadians are seeing optimism going forward. And you're hearing about this on the radio. Happy sentiment, Canada flag, light at the end of the tunnel. I'm not sure I could draw that, so let's just picture. It's easier to picture. In 2019, 90% of Canadians say they are optimistic about goals and their savings. And this tends to be a little higher than normal. So we thought we'd dig into this a little bit more. Because typically you don't see Canadians agreeing on 90% of much other than, what, traffic is bad, the weather's unpredictable. 90% could agree on that. But now we're seeing it about goals and savings. Last week on London Live, Devin Peacock was talking about New Year's resolutions. And... You told him that it was basically by January 12th that you were done with the New Year's resolution. Fun thing to make on January 1st. You've got the day off. Oh, yeah. I'll get into shape. Oh, yeah. I'll stop cursing around the house. Oh, yeah. I'll shovel, shovel other people's driveways. That was an easy one this year. So around January 12th, that disappears. But when we talk about goals, we don't have to be talking about New Year's resolutions, do we? So let's do that now, because a survey was done by Motive Financial, and they asked Canadians about a number of different things, about their savings, about what they were hoping for, about how they plan to get there this year. And joining us right now is a guy from London 
who now lives in Edmonton. Jeff Wright is a senior vice president of client solutions with Canadian Western Bank. As we pour over this survey, Jeff, how are you? I'm great, thanks. How are you? Not too bad. You're a long way from London right now. Do you miss us? I do miss you. My folks are still there, one of my brothers, but uh, but it's good being out here in Edmonton as well. All right. Well, it's good for you to be able to reconnect with this part of the world. And you not only have that, you have some good news to connect us to. I like this. Let's take a look at a survey that was just done that kind of looks at 2019 goals. We were mentioning New Year's resolutions. Maybe we got to change that just to goals. It sounds so much more simple and, and less pressure packed. It does. And it's, uh, you know, it's wonderful when we've heard from a number of uh, people across the country that they've got great aspirations around things they want to achieve and find ways to kind of make those things that have been their dreams a reality and save some money to make that happen. Okay, so when you began to ask Canadians about their goals, what did you want to find out? Uh, for starters, it was a little bit just, are they, are they very practical and are people worried about things like paying down mortgages and paying their bills, or are they a little more aspirational and, and kind of where's their head at? And, and what people told us was people have things they want to do with their lives that are going to make them a little happier and enjoying life a little more. And they're consciously trying to find ways to save money to make those things happen. Nice. Now, when you hear that as somebody who watches people and, you know, talks to them about whether it's saving or whether it's investing or when you hear that, what do you think of it? Uh, I think it's great. Um, You know, I think we've gone through different cycles in our economy and there are times when people are really pessimistic and to me, it sounds like a very optimistic message that people are are trying to do the things that make them happy um, and are making little adjustments to the way they manage their money or their lifestyle to make those things a reality. So if we've got 90% of Canadians optimistic about goals in 2019, optimistic about their savings, let's dig into this a little bit deeper. What are you finding in terms of Canadians who decide to do some saving? So, you know, they're they're doing little things um, for the most part. And so, you know, it's things like controlling their spending habits day to day um, and also thinking about the way they're doing their banking and finding uh, organizations that are easy to deal with. It's, it's not complicated, that pays them a good rate without a lot of fees um, and just enables them to build that nest egg so that, you know, whether it's a a vacation or a weekend getaway or whatever it is they're trying to save their money for, um, that it's going to be there when they want it. We're talking with Londoner Jeff Wright, born and bred, now living in Edmonton. Jeff is a senior vice president with Client Solutions, Canadian Western Bank, and we're looking at a survey that seems to show a whole lot of positive stuff when sometimes we think, uh, it's it's gray outside, we may get some snow at some point in this part of the world. Jeff, do you have snow that has stayed in Edmonton? We do have our share of snow right now. See, we're still waiting for the stuff to stick, and that hasn't happened yet. But that may come, and you know what? That gets people feeling a little pessimistic. 90% of Canadians optimistic about their 2019 goals and their savings. You did mention 
in terms of of putting money into a bank account, looking for a good rate. For years, it seems, if you had a savings account, you didn't really look at the interest rate because there wasn't a whole lot to look at. What are we seeing now in the banking world in terms of interest rates on savings accounts? Yeah, so I think that's absolutely right. Uh, For years, the interest rates in the country were, were so low that that we weren't making a whole lot in our savings accounts, but it started to creep up. Um, and, you know, I think banks are, are trying to do their part to make these, um, make dreams come to life for our clients. And so you're seeing some pretty attractive rates. But I think even beyond the rates, um, what clients are telling us is they want something that's really simple. They don't want um, a promotional rate that only lasts for a certain amount of time or complicated fees. Just keep it really simple for them. Give them a good rate, um, and it makes them uh, or encourages them to save even more. Jeff, you did talk about people trying to make their dreams a reality. In surveying Canadians, what did you find in that way? Yeah, so we asked them about what are they saving for, um, and what were what people played back to us was it's things like a special family vacation or a surprise getaway with their spouse, or one of those once-in-a-lifetime experiences that we all think about doing, but it's hard to do, like heading out and climbing Mount Kilimanjaro or something like that. <laughs> Is that something you've done? I have, actually. No way. I I was just kind of kidding. You've climbed Mount Kilimanjaro? Uh, I was about 20 years ago, but I made it to the top. Okay. Can we take a second and ask you how you make it to the top? How hard is that? Uh, it's it's honestly it's a little bit of luck and it's a little bit of determination. You just keep walking really slowly, and altitude uh, affects everybody differently. But I was lucky to be one of the ones that was able to deal with it and, and make it right up there. So, is it high enough that by the end you do have oxygen tanks to help you out, or can you do it without an oxygen tank? Yeah, there's no, there's no tanks. The top of Kilimanjaro is basically the bottom of Mount Everest. Um, and so you could do it without oxygen, but for sure you're breathing heavy and the air is pretty thin when you get up there. What is the accomplishment like after you, you know, you can just say if, if you happen to be talking about banking with a guy in London, Ontario, you can say, yeah, I, I have climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. What's that like <laughs> to say? It's pretty neat. It, you know, it's one of those things that I always dreamed about doing and I had a chance to, to get out there and do it with some friends and, and the fact that we all made it to the top together was a pretty special thing. We're talking with Jeff Wright, born and bred Londoner, now living in Edmonton, and the Senior Vice President of Client Solutions with Canadian Western Bank. And we're looking at a survey that indicates 90% of Canadians are opting for optimism in 2019. Now, it's one thing to say, let's put aside some money to climb Mount Kilimanjaro or take a vacation. There are those things that maybe we call uh, the mundane, saving for a down payment on the house, uh, home renovations, maybe paying down the mortgage a little bit. Did that kind of pop up in the survey at all? It it did a little. And, you know, there are people that are saying that that they're saving for those things, not as many as uh, those that are kind of dreaming about making an experience happen. Um, but, you know, everyone's in a different life situation and has different goals. And so for sure, some people are thinking about things like a down payment or a reno or buying a car or whatever the the more material thing is they want. Um, but more people are thinking about experiences um, and how they can do something special with their life that's just going to make them happy. 
And in terms of how they plan to go about this, that's something else you investigated with this survey. How do Canadians plan to save? So it's a little bit of controlling their spend. And so looking at things like watching for sales or loyalty programs, things like that, um, being a little smarter, I guess, when it comes to the impulse purchases and trying to dial those back a little bit or eat out less frequently and things like that. Um, and then look for somewhere that their money's going to work for them and that they can put it away and, and earn a good rate and it'll grow for them. Pretty amazing when you make little changes like not eating out as much, how the money can grow, right? For sure. It, it sounds simple and it's just one of those things we all need to commit to. Uh, the discipline factor. Well, we'll see if we aim to be more disciplined in 2019 as well. Jeff, thank you for the stories of Mount Kilimanjaro. Thank you for the expert insight and uh, hope you get back to London sometime soon. All right. Great talking to you. Great talking to you. Jeff Wright, Senior Vice President of Canadian Western Bank and Client Solutions. So that goes through their survey with an old fine-tooth comb. Hopefully you're fitting into one of those categories. Coming up, we'll talk London Knights Hall of Fame with Rob Shrimp. We'll relive some stories with Rob Shrimp. If you remember him as a player, you might remember what he did at the end of warm-up, where the backup goalie would go in net, and Rob Shrimp would tee up one-timers at the goalie, 15, 20 shots, and the goalie would be in there to stop them. That's one of the things we'll find a story behind a story on. Rob Shrimp joins us in about 10 minutes' time on London Live. Next up, Jacqueline LaBelle with news. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL. In five minutes, we'll be in conversation with Rob Shrimp. He goes into the Don Brankley London Knights Hall of Fame today. Goes in with Walt McKechnie. He was one of the first players ever chosen in an NHL draft. Went sixth overall in the first ever NHL amateur draft, not the NHL entry draft. This goes all the way back to 1963. And while he wasn't a London Knight, he was part of the franchise, was part of the London Nationals before they became the London Knights. Pete James always tells a great story about being in the building. It was some hotel somewhere with big, antiquated wooden doors, and there was a meeting going on deciding whether or not the London Knights would go into what would become the Ontario Hockey League eventually. And they were listening basically at the keyhole and heard the name Knights. And that that became the name that the franchise used. And they took the green and gold colors of the Minnesota North Stars at that point and have had them basically throughout the history of the franchise. And last week it was announced that the Don Brankley London Knights Hall of Fame would induct members every year. And we heard yesterday on London Live from Rick Doyle, Knights alumni president, about the fact that they will be elected every year from different decades. So you'll have the decade of the 1960s, and you'll have a player that comes from there. You'll have the decade of the 70s. You'll have a player that comes from there, 80s, 90s, and then the first part of the 2000s. We were talking a little while ago, but how do we designate that? Are they the two thousand zeros or do, I don't know what to do with that first decade of the 2000s how do we describe that oh, the 90s that's easy are we now in the 2010s I don't know if you can help me out with that if you know 
please email mike at 980cfpl.ca. That's mike at 980cfpl.ca. We don't have good nicknames. Are we in the tens? Were we in the zeros before? That doesn't make any sense. The 90s, the 80s, the 70s. People point back to glory years from there. What are we pointing to now? We're going on 19 years into it. we got to figure this out. Yes, we are 19 years into it, aren't we? I haven't written a check yet. So that's coming up in just about three minutes from now. We'll track down Rob Shrimp. He is in London because if you want to see the official news conference that will have the first part of Induction Day for the London Knights, you'll be able to do that at our 980 CFPL Facebook page because we will have it well, Facebook Live it, and we'll have it there that you can see even afterward, even if you can't catch it live. And then there will be an on-ice ceremony tonight as well, and it will begin just before 7 o'clock so that we don't push the start time of the game too much. So if you're headed to the game between the London Knights and the Guelph Storm tonight, just get to your seats a little bit earlier than you normally would, and you can see all of these players. Five of the six are going to be in attendance. Dave Lowry, unavailable simply because... He's with the L.A. Kings right now, and they're in the middle of something called the NHL season. But everybody else will be in attendance, and it promises to be a very special day. We're going to talk environmental stuff in about a half hour from now. I want to take a look through the power that exists when the president of the United States declares a state of emergency. Because this is something that has been, I think, more than hinted at by U.S. President Donald Trump. There is exceptional power in a couple of different areas. And as Donald Trump prepares an address to the American people and really the rest of the world tonight, it's something that may come up. Not sure. But I want to look at what that could mean if, in fact, Donald Trump uses the words state of emergency. Rob Shrimp coming up next on London Live. Let's take a quick break. You're listening to Global News Radio 980 CFPL. The other phrase U.S. President Donald Trump could use tonight is national emergency. And again, that gives major powers. So that in about 30 minutes from now, we'll look at those powers and what it could mean. Right now, let's talk about a celebration that is happening in the city of London today. The London Knights are going to, from this point forward, be inducting players into the Don Brankley London Knights Hall of Fame year after year. And it gives an opportunity to recognize some of the pretty amazing accomplishments. And I think we have to look at this twofold. Yesterday, Rick Doyle, Knights alumni president, was on London Live and had said this was an initiative that was talked about by Mark Hunter shortly after the passing of Don Brankley, and it would be a way to honor the memory of Don Brankley. At the same time, this is almost foresight in the number of players that have had such an impact either on the hockey world or the world that have come from the Knights organization, and you want to recognize those accomplishments over the years, and you don't want to use up all 99 of the numerals that people can wear on their backs. So this is a great way to do it. Everyone who's had their number retired by the London Knights, everyone whose banner hangs in the rafters, including Pete James and Don Brankley, will go into the Don Brankley London Knights Hall of Fame automatically. And then every year there will be inductions. And today marks the first time 
that will take place. And the actual induction ceremony will be official at 3.30 as part of a news conference. And then there will be another ceremony on the ice tonight. And that is before the Knights take on the Guelph Storm. We had an opportunity to talk with Dennis Marouk yesterday. And today we have an opportunity, even before the ceremony, to track down Rob Shrimp. And we have done that as Rob Shrimp walks around the streets of London. Rob, how's that feeling right now? <laughs> it's beautiful. I love this city. So uh, just to get a chance to walk in a little bit here with my, my best friend, Dennis Zubrett. Uh, heading to our old old stomping ground spaghetti eddies like it was a pregame uh, ritual. So <laughs> it's, uh, it's great to be back and see some familiar faces. Okay, you have to talk to Knights fans about how important spaghetti eddies was during your years as a Knight. When would you guys go there? We always go in the morning. There was a there's a big breakfast uh, breakfast club crew, so there's, we had some older guys that were out of school or whatnot. We would go in the morning and skate and have a little like pregame. Um, you know, we'll we'll do our thing, get ready for the game that night, and then after that, we huddle up together and go over to Spaghetti Eddie's around uh, 11, 11.30, 12 o'clock, go get our pregame nap, and then show up for, to rock the JLC. <laughs> no one knew how important Spaghetti Eddie's was to the success of the London Knights, but uh, all of those carbs that you guys would burn, that's where they were coming from. <laughs> yeah, well, now that I'm older and retired, I understand that bowl of carbs is going to hurt a little bit more <laughs> than it did when we were 17 and 18, so... I know what I'm getting into right now, but I love the taste of it. The uh, the owner was always really good to us, so uh, we enjoyed the you know the banter back and forth and hanging out with each other in that place. It felt good. It was just like our own little kind of you know underground place to go in and camarader you know have some camaraderie and get ready for the game. Rob, we always would hear that the teams that you played on in the mid 2000s, I guess, I don't even know how to describe. How do we describe that decade? In, in 2003 and 2004 and 2005, those teams created kind of rock stars. Could you guys walk the streets? Would you get recognized doing that? Oh, yeah. We were, it was amazing, uh, really, that kind of attention you got uh, as, an, as a player on the team. and People around the city, it was, it was really cool. You'd walk down, no matter where you were in the city, you'd run in if you'd go to the grocery store. Um, Wherever you would be in town, people would stop and say hi and great game and keep it going, whatever it would be, kind of encouraging words. Um, so it was, that was what was unique about it. So you felt like you were right in the NHL. Actually, my experience here was better than my experience in the NHL. Wow. I didn't was... get to play in Edmonton. And then in Long Island, we had no fans. In Atlanta, we didn't really have fans. So Junior was like where the, I had that best great feeling of a pack building in a city that really like wrapped themselves around the team. Rob Shrimp with us as we relive some memories. Rob being inducted today into the Don Brankley London Knights Hall of Fame. We will talk a lot about Branks today, Rob. Can you tell us just what a guy like that does for a team, having somebody who's there as much as he was? Yeah, it was unique, and, and Branks was, uh, he knew the dynamics of the locker room. It's what people don't understand what they account for, I think. Um, Branks really understood the dynamic of the locker room and the players and what they needed and how to kind of like some guys needed more ego stroking than others. And like he really managed the room in a lot of sense. So his, his, uh, what he meant to our team is invaluable words. So he was, he was awesome. You know, he really, and then also when you were like a really good player on the team, Branks brings you that next level by just doing special things for you, making you feel special. And like, you know, if you are a guy that goes out on a regular night basis and scores three goals a night, like you are different than the best guys on the team. Franks would treat you that way, but also treat everybody else with, with great respect as well. It's not like he made anybody feel bad. He would just make sure that you were ready to go right before you went out, which 
for me and guys like Corey Perry, I think he would probably say the same thing. That, that boosted our confidence, made us feel really good going out the door, ready to go. Like I always say, light up the JLC, baby. <laughs> he started a tradition that continues to today that I think you look around NHL teams, a lot of teams do it, where that first goal puck, that gets put on a plaque. That becomes something really special. Yeah. Do you remember getting your first goal puck from your first goal as a night? Yeah, absolutely. I just found him a couple years ago. Actually, we're going through a move with my family. We had it stored, so I found a bunch of them. He made it. It wasn't just for your first puck. It was a lot of accolades that we had and we would get pucks for. Uh, so it's constant reminder of like your accomplishments and making sure you. He was kind of helping us be proud of him too. Because as young kids, you just really focus on just going out, you know, whatever one score. And sometimes it's nice to take a second to be like you accomplished this. That's good. Now do some more. Um, it was a cool thing to have. I had one plaque. I just found. I had. Uh, 100 points in 37 games my last year with London. So that was a cool one. I was like the third one in history to do it behind Wayne Gretzky. And I forget the other gentleman's name. I just remember that one name because it's a pretty good one. <laughs> but 100 points in 37 <laughs> games. I mean, there were games that you had where you were putting up eight points in a game. Do yeah. you remember any of those kind of things, or is that kind of a blur? No, that was uh, really calculated by me. I was really upset that I actually got set down. I mean, not to make it a sad story, but I was really frustrated that I didn't play in the NHL year. I thought I, I was ready. So I was kind of came down to London with, you know, I was really happy to come back to London, but I was going to prove a point. Like, I, I don't belong here. I should be out, up there. So that was what my mindset was, and then I think I kind of proved it with those stats and then carried on and realized I wasn't going to get called up from the OHL to the show. So I just, we tried to win a championship in London, focus on that. But the first 10 or 15 games, I was really, really determined. Well, yeah, you you could tell by the numbers and, and by more. You went on to lead the league in scoring that year and got very close to another championship with the London Knights. Yeah. You now go into Yeah. You now go into the Hall of Fame, the first class. What was it like to find that out? It was really special. Uh really special. Really something to be proud of and, and I don't you don't yeah, like it takes some time to sit back and reflect and see what you've actually done. Um you know, when especially for myself, traveling all over the world, my, my world's been a little bit hectic the last decade, so you kind of lose track of what kind of cool things you've done. And to have that accomplishment um, or that acknowledgement from the London Knights was really special. And then when they said it was like Branks' Hall of Fame, it made it even more special, as, as I mentioned, how much he meant to a lot of us and the team and the organization. So uh, he was an awesome guy, and he meant a lot to the city, and he loved the city and loved all of us. So to be able to be have an um, individual kind of not accolade like that and have ranked side-by-side side with me is really unique. And I, I, uh, I love that part of it. Rob Shrimp with us as we relive some London Knights memories. Rob will be inducted into the Don Brankley London Knights Hall of Fame with Walt McKechnie, Dennis Marouk, Dave Lowry, Chris Taylor, and Tim Taylor today as the London Knights get set to play the Guelph Storm tonight. Rob, people remember you for a lot of things you did on the ice, but even you know little warm-up things, going out and, and flipping pucks around, or at the end of warm-up, you would take a lot of shots and the backup goalie would go in. Did you ever have a backup goalie? who said, you know, Rob, I'm, I'm going to take off early. You just, you just fired the empty net. <laughs> well, they had that yeah, in pro, you really can't, you know, they would just get out and they're like, screw you. <laughs> I mean, it's nothing against the backup goalie, but I mean, I was literally trying to get my shot dialed in so that I could help the team win. And then, if I, I mean, in those times, I was scoring a lot from exactly where I'd practice in warm-ups. Remember, I'd take like 20 shots in there, and then during the game, I'd probably have another five during the game, and I'd have two or three goals. So, it was uh, very calculated why I was doing that. It was nothing against the backup goalie. It was just to make sure that I was ready for the hockey game. So sometimes people lose sight of that. And I'm trying to get my shot was special that time. So I had I was picking corners that were you know 
four or five inches big, and my shot had to be accurate. So there's no better time to get ready for that than warm-up. So if you're the backup goalie, I'm sorry, but <laughs> <laughs> take, take one for the team, man. All you got to do is open gates all day. Like, you got to earn something here. Uh, see, I love the stories and behind things like that. When, when you were taking those shots, would you take one and then know, yeah, okay, I got it, and then you would know to go, or would there be a number that you would take? Oh, yeah. What was no, it? Yeah, it would be like two or three times a row that I knew that I was dialed in. Rob Shrimp with us. Rob, other parts of your London Knights career, obviously winning championships, winning a Memorial Cup. What stands out to you in, in those moments? Um, uh, it does a lot. There's a lot of great things that were going on and still go on in London. But it just, uh, yeah, the Mem Cup was amazing, being able to spend it and celebrate it with great people like the Holmes brothers at Forest City. We haven't spent a lot of time there, play golf with them. Um, just the way the city wrapped around us um, after that championship, we celebrated it for like a month straight, and it was just every day was blessed and beautiful, and fun. And we appreciated each other. We just did something really cool, so it was. And we did it in a pretty cool way as well. I mean, we broke some records and did some cool, really cool things. Had some great players, great people involved. Um, you know, even like locker room staff, like you know, sticks, sticks coming in, telling jokes and doing rides. There's so many cool. Memories. It really is. Once I come back here, every time I come back here, they always come back to life. You know, especially walking to Spaghetti Eddie's like this. It seems like a flashback. So uh, there's so many cool things that we're going around in the back scenes. Well, you know what? You've got to be almost at Spaghetti Eddie's now. So enjoy the meal, and uh, we'll see you later on. Rob, thanks for taking some time for us. No problem. Thanks a lot. It was great talking to you, Stevzy. Great talking to you. Rob Shrimp of the London Knights, goes into the Don Brankley London Knights Hall of Fame today with Walt McKechnie, with Dennis Marook, with Dave Lowry, and Chris Taylor, and Tim Taylor. We're going to take a break. We'll let you know what is ahead on London Live. We're going to be talking about a state of emergency or the declaration of a national emergency in the United States. We have Donald Trump, who is going to speak up tonight, and Donald Trump is going to have an address... We don't know exactly what it's going to say, but it could, it, it could, couldn't it? It could have something to do with a national emergency, which is the government not really moving forward in the U.S. Is that enough? Well, if you look back in history, yeah, that is. So what does it mean? What powers does it give to the president? Not just Donald Trump, but any president. We've had other presidents that have put it into effect. Franklin Delano Roosevelt has. Abraham Lincoln has. What if Donald Trump does? What does that allow him to do? We'll discuss it. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. As a quick update to something we were discussing yesterday, we were looking at Maple Leaf Foods, and we were looking at a group in London that had decided they were a little concerned about what Maple Leaf Foods was going to bring. And we had a great call right about this time yesterday from Dave. And Dave had said, be careful saying that we're going to see 1,400-plus full- and part-time jobs created. He said a lot of this will funnel through the closure of other plants, and this will actually take down the workforce combined and then bring a lot of those employees here. We have calls out to Maple Leaf Foods. We have not heard back from them. And also a call out to the union representing those workers because even at the time that this announcement came that Maple Leaf Foods was going to open a processing plant on Wilton Grove Road south of the 401, we had heard that the union, you know, 
wasn't too sure how this affected its workers, have not heard back from the union. So that's just an update on that story. And again, we'll continue to pursue it, and hopefully we do get some answers in the coming days. Coming up next hour, we're going to focus in on a couple of environmental things. We'll hear from Jay Stanford on some of the things that will be happening in 2019 and some stuff that in particular will be happening today based on the Ontario government's environmental outlook and what has trickled down to the municipalities. How does this affect London? What exactly is London going to have to do? What does Jay Stanford see in there? Is this this a positive thing? Because there are some changes between what we saw from the Liberal government and now what we have with the Conservative government. So we'll talk about that. And we'll look at not just a classroom without real walls, but an entire semester for high school students in this city without a lot of walls. They'll be doing a lot of things within the community, and it shows just that next push to the way you can be learning and how it prepares you for the rest of your life or perhaps for a specific career. So that is coming up as well. We are right now heading into news. Jacqueline LaBelle has that next. She'll get you right up to date. This is London Live on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. This hour, we're going to look at the Made in Ontario Environmental Plan. There is a little bit of a difference between what the Liberals had planned to do and what this one has, but, well, not a whole lot. We're going to talk with Jay Stanford about that, and we are also going to talk about an environmental course that is more than just a course. It's a semester in school. Could you imagine if instead of going to a classroom every day, you were doing things within the community? And they were helping you to prepare for what life is like. If you said, you know, I, I think I'd like to work for the Ministry of Natural Resources someday. Well, this would give you a chance to interact with people who already do. But it's not just a course. It's an entire semester. And we'll spell out how that is taking place through the Thames Valley District School Board. You heard Jacqueline LaBelle commenting and bringing you news at 2 o'clock of Donald Trump U.S. President, and his address tonight. And there is a really interesting read to take you into this. And if you want to check it out, it's very easy to find. It is free online. It's in the January-February edition of Atlantic. And it is something that is actually written by Elizabeth Goyton. And it talks about national emergencies or states of emergency in the United States and the power that exists when that is invoked. And we've heard those words coming from U.S. President Donald Trump. So I want to take just a a minute, well, probably about five. And if you have thoughts on this or if you have thoughts on what he could say tonight, what that could mean, whether or not this is all about the wall I still can't believe we're talking about this wall. You know, we've had Democrats pointing out that it's like there's a list of boxes to check. And he's anything he said, he's just trying to check off. We're still talking about this wall. Doesn't matter whether you're a Trump supporter, you're lukewarm about him, or whether you dislike him. This is something that could come up. So here is kind of a foundation of what, the emergency situation could bring in terms of power to the U.S. president. 
doesn't matter who it is because some have already made use of this. So you can call a state of emergency. That's typically reserved for disasters or invasions or, you know, you name it, anything that would fall into that. An outbreak of uh, a large, large illness or, or a virus spreading, that's where you would find it. But if we are to look at the power that exists Basically, what declaring a national emergency does is allows a president to engage in conduct that would be illegal during ordinary times. So, in other words, you recognize and, you know, we can go into any number of countries and we can look back through how they have come to the point where they are. And we can look back at their constitutions and we can look at charters of rights. But. Essentially, what you recognize, as any country will, is that if you have to carry out, say, the democratic process, that's not going to work quickly. It's not going to happen smoothly. And the U.S. is a good example of that right now. Coming off the midterms, things have kind of halted. Things have ground down to not even a crawl, not even a drip. So this is recognizing that, hey, if something has to happen... We have to put the power in the hands of the president because he's at the top of the food chain politically in the United States. So that's what it does. We have had examples of this before. If you go back to the Civil War, Abe Lincoln used a national emergency. Uh, If you go back to the Second World War, Franklin Delano Roosevelt used it in the internment of U.S. citizens and residents of Japanese descent. That didn't go very well. George W. Bush called in hundreds of thousands of reservists after 9-11 and, again, used a lot of the measures that exist if you declare something a national emergency to do it. It allows a president to, quote, unilaterally suspend the law that bars government testing of biological and chemical agents on human subjects. If you invoke a national emergency. So that's how far you can go. And again, it's reserved for invasion. It's reserved for rebellion. Those sorts of things. Not typically to kickstart a government back going again. Not typically to build a wall. But this is what we have to look at. One of the other things that it can do is it can give you power over wire communications. And last hour, we were hinting at the fact that sometimes laws will become a little antiquated. Nobody's really made use of this for a while, so it hasn't been updated. And if you look at the wire communications laws in the United States, some of them go back to 1942. And under a national emergency, they allow the president to, quote, assume control over wire communications. Well, okay, that's that's great, but back then, wire communications were a whole lot different than what we deal with in terms of digital communication right now. But there is no update to that, and there's no time in order to create one. So, I mean, again, take this for what it's worth. It's in Atlantic. Elizabeth Goyton read it. One of the things that she says, or wrote it, one of the things that she says is, I think that, or sorry, she quotes uh, President Trump and, and goes back to something he had said, which was, I think that Google and Twitter and Facebook, they're really treading on very troubled territory and they have to be careful. So 
if you wanted to invoke a national emergency, you could ensure, if you wanted to, that Internet searches returned certain things, let's say, that certain things were left out. And we were talking with an Internet lawyer yesterday, and we found out that it it was very easy for, let's say, a company like Google to take a search that would come up and say, yeah, uh, in, in that case, it was, let's say, someone had declared bankruptcy 25 years ago, and they didn't want those reports of them declaring bankruptcy to come up again. In a legal situation, it's difficult to show why you would want that to happen. But if all of a sudden you get the courts to give you a thumbs up, it's very easy for Google to change that. So that's something to be concerned about. Now, in the United States, because of the way that the Internet already operates, they're not Russia, they're not China, they're not Iran, there aren't, let's say, safeguards, and there aren't a lot of you know, sponges sponging off certain parts of it. What they would have is lawsuits that would come up. So they would have to deal with that. So that one could get messy, but that's something that really should be updated. One of the other things that a national emergency allows you to do is to, quote, deal with any unusual and extraordinary threat. So you can actually invoke what is called the IEEPA, which is the International Emergency Economic Powers Act. And that was passed back in 1977. A lot of these things are not that recent, but it allows you to deal harshly with people who are American citizens And the Atlantic article points to George W. Bush, who basically made use of Executive Order 13224 and declared that any foreigner or U.S. citizen suspected of supporting foreign terrorists would have sanctions erected against them. So that's something that can take place. So you see, and this is what I wanted to illustrate, how far ranging these powers go from sanctions against Americans to control over the internet, to basically engaging in conduct that would be illegal, but hey, because this is a national emergency, it's different. So pay very close attention to what U.S. President Donald Trump says as he makes his address. And it's something certainly that will be talked about a whole lot tomorrow, no doubt on the Craig Needle Show between 9 and noon. And we'll address some of the things that were said here on London Live as well. But just know that that power exists. There's no guarantee that U.S. President Donald Trump would make use of it. But in case he does, that's how far-reaching it gets. Let's take a quick break. Up next, we will talk about the, the new way that the province is looking at the environment. And something that now exists, the made in Ontario environmental plan and how it would impact London, Ontario. Jay Stanford is going to join us on London Live. You're listening to Global News Radio 980 CFPL. We've lost our sunshine in downtown London, so if you were trying to make your way here, maybe don't bother. Find another place that's a whole lot more sunny than what we are. If you're here now, well... Enjoy the mild temperatures that we at least have. The Made in Ontario Environment Plan has been submitted at a provincial level. But what does this mean? 
What does this mean in terms of things like greenhouse gas emissions or air pollutants or things that, that we need to promote maybe even a little bit more than we already do? Cycling, walking, getting out of vehicles, other forms of transit. Well, why don't we look? Because today before committees, we are going to have a bit of a presentation that talks about this. Jay Stanford is the Director of Environmental Services and Solid Waste with the City of London and has been nice enough to join us right now and talk a little bit about the impact on London, what he's looking for today and going forward into 2019. Jay, how is 2019 going for you so far? Hey, wonderful, Mike. Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year. And how happy do you expect 2019 to be as far as environment and uh, and waste collection goes in the city of London? You optimistic? Mike, I am. I think it's going to be a great year. Um, we're looking ahead at a number of our projects and programs for 2019. We're also seeing what's happening at the provincial level. I think there's going to be a lot of good news here for, for London, and I think Londoners are ready for it. Okay. Where would you start in terms of things you can't wait to have arrive? Well, you know, there's going to be further discussion on the Green Bin program. We're going to be preparing the implementation plans. We've got some big decisions to make on that, and I know Londoners want to get involved in that one. We're going to have work as well on our uh, Community Energy Action Plan, and essentially that's a fancy term for more energy conservation and our look at how we're going to uh, help improve things from a climate change perspective. Okay, and... Where do you think the city sits right now? Is there a lot of work to be done to get up to where you would like to see London, or are we close now? You know what? We've been doing a great job. When I say we, that's the big collective we. Londoners and businesses have been doing their part. We have clearly been reducing our greenhouse gas emissions, so that helps from a climate change perspective. Uh, We're also closely watching... uh, what's occurring at the provincial and federal level, because we're geared in many ways on programs and projects at that level, and they uh, you know, influence how things occur here in London. Jay Stanford joining us as we look ahead through 2019 at what is to come. Now, one thing we did see kind of in later 2018 was a change in government, and we had seen the Liberals were very interested in doing a lot of things that have the environment in mind. What are you seeing now that we do have the Conservatives in place? Well, what occurred late in the year, as you mentioned, was this proposed Made in Ontario Environment Plan was released by the the Conservative government. Um, It's very interesting. Many things in that plan are similar to where uh, the previous government was heading. Um, But what we really like about this plan is they've taken many aspects of the environment not only the natural environment, but they've also uh, applied thinking along the lines of the built environment and really have connected the two, the built and natural environment, into one plan. And it allows us at the city to make sure that our programs are connected. And I think it also helps Londoners because they realize that, uh, you know, let's, for example, litter. Litter on the ground, litter in a park. You know, it needs to be picked up no matter where you go. Waste management, it's whether you're at home, work, or play. It's all connected together, and the provincial government has done that nicely in this plan. Now, is there anything that concerns you about any changes that they've made? There, there are some things, and we've identified that there are some gaps. They have uh, changed uh, the Ontario uh, goal for greenhouse gas reduction. They've lowered it. Um, it matches now Canada's 
target as a whole, but Ontario was always expected to be a larger contributor to greenhouse gas reduction versus province such as Saskatchewan and Alberta. So those are some of the changes there that uh, we still need more details on. We're also wondering, we noticed in the plan that there's not a lot of discussion on things such as cycling and walking and transit and the important role they play in uh, reducing air pollution and uh, greenhouse gas as well, Mike. Okay, so questions obviously need to be asked in that way. We're talking with Jay Stanford, Director of Environmental Programs and Solid Waste with the City of London. Do you get opportunities to talk with the province as municipalities and say, okay, we don't necessarily see a lot of things about transit and cycling and walking. What are you guys doing? Do you get a chance to do that? We do. We're lucky. Uh, We we get a chance not only, as all Londoners do, through uh, what's referred to as the... uh, Environmental Bill of Rights, and it's the opportunity to provide direct comments to the provincial government. So we have that opportunity. We also work through some of our associations, like the Association of Municipalities of Ontario. So many opportunities. The the province has traditionally been a good listener, and we we hope that's going to be maintained here, because there's, there's, there's room for improvement like there always is, But, you know, Mike, looking forward to what's going on in 2019, whether it's on the natural environment side for more bee pollination projects, invasive species, to looking at more work to do with uh, bike lanes and cycle tracks, right through to that green bin program, it is going to be exciting. Jay Stanford with us, and I love that you're saying it's going to be exciting. I love when you get excited about things. Now, when we look ahead to the meeting that takes place, boil it down for us. What sorts of things are going to be discussed there? Well, I I think there'll be some questions on what are those gaps and how important are they and uh, what will it take to fill them. Uh, And I think there will be many different views on, uh, you know, the old plans versus the new plans. So nothing, though, that I I, I see is a big stumbling block, though. This is a proposed plan. There's room for improvement, not uncommon. But I think we have a new council here in London that wants to get on with some great things locally. And I know that we've got a community that's got open arms to doing more things, such as the London Environmental Network. And later this year, Mike, we have uh, the launch of what's going to be referred to as Green Economy London. So once again, great opportunities for businesses and Londoners to get involved in environmental protection. And what will the incentives be there? Well, I think anything from, uh, well, (laughs) doing the right thing for the environment here locally, networking with others who care about the environment, finding out that you're not alone, joining in with community groups that already exist where you can have your ideas brought forward. And, of course, here at the city, we love community engagement, and there's going to be a number of opportunities to do with things such as bike share, food waste avoidance, the green bin, and making sure those parks are well-maintained. Lots of great opportunities. Jay, thanks for the time today. Hey, thank you, Mike, and I look forward to chatting further in 2019. Definitely. Jay Stanford, Director of Environmental Programs and Solid Waste with the City of London. So taking a look at a number of things at the Community and Protective Services Committee meeting today, cycle tracks, bike lanes, green bin, something that London's been waiting for for a long time and is now getting closer to a reality. But green economy. And this is something that we've heard about before. We've had different companies looking at green energy, things like that in the past. The problem that they face is the cost, because a lot of times there is added cost to it. You can be doing something, but you have to give something up. And getting back to a conversation we had a lot in 2018 
We've got a world that needs to have these changes. Why are governments talking about changes and why did you have, you know, Kyoto and why have you had G7 or G20 or G8? Why have they all been getting together on this? Because there is a problem and you can't ignore what scientists say in the warming of the temperature of the earth. And the impact that it will have. I mean, yesterday we had more stories coming out about black glaciers or dark glaciers. And it's just showing pollutants collecting on glaciers. But it, it's like when snow melts. Picture snow melting and it, it gets dirty because it's got particles in it. Well, it just it does that because it's melted so quickly. And you see the, the dark dirt that sticks up on it. So you're seeing that in glaciers. There's another sign that scientists see as being negative. But... Does this actually force any action in anything? That's that's the big concern, because we had the province get rid of cap and trade, and we're loving that of the pumps right now. That's fantastic. But eventually, that's going to catch up to us when the federal government kind of chips in and says, yeah, but this is how we're handling that right now. So where do we actually start our start line in focusing in on what it will take to make a difference for the future. We've got a lot of things going. We didn't used to recycle. Recycle now. But overall, we do need a start line somewhere. And I'm not sure we've hit that yet. And it's a difficult start line to have because you wind up with people who say, yeah, but that's not good for my business or that's not good for my pocketbook. So I'm not going to do it. That's not good for the amount of time it takes me to accomplish something. So I'm not going to do it. What do you think about that? We'll open up the phones briefly. 519-643-2222. We do have to take a quick break for news. But if you are on hold, please stay with us. And we'll talk in about four minutes from now. 519-643-2222. And we'll take a look at what you think of this as we unfold yet another year where we're going to hear more about we have to do things for the environment. We have to do things for the future. But there is a price tag attached to it either in what it costs or in what you lose out on. And sometimes that's enough of a deterrent to make people say, ah, put it off till 2020. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. We talked with Jay Stanford just before news about basically 2019 and what's ahead in terms of our environmental conscience in the city of London. Bob, thank you for hanging on at 519-643-2222. What's on your mind? Hey, Mike. Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year. Hey. Well, i got to tell you, Mike, <clears throat> I, think we're, uh, I think we're being conned in a lot of ways. This is a money grab. Now, this global warming thing, you know, you've looked at it. I've looked at it. Millions of other people look at it. They're going to shape their own opinions on what they read and how they research things. So, you know, I just come to the conclusion that it's just a natural cycle. You know, there's been five previous uh, great extinctions on this planet, out of our control. Okay, now they're talking about the blackness of, on the snow on top of the mountains, but they don't talk about all the volcanic activity when combined on this planet well exceeds anything that mankind is putting out. Okay, that, that's just a fact. That's the other side of the sciences that are talking that game. Um, I, I got to laugh at people sometimes when they say, 
Yeah, we got to save the planet, but, you know, they go home every night to their iPhone or TV cable or satellite, <laughs> everything plastic in your house. Take a look around you. So basically, if we're really serious about saving the planet, and I'm in, because I can do it. I've almost done this uh, to about a 90 percent, uh, you know, percentile at one time in my life. you got to live like a homesteader. All right, because that's the only way you're not going to have an impact on this planet. Just like the people who came here and toiled to homestead this great nation we have, that's what they did every day. You know what their day consisted of? About 16 hours getting up and surviving, going out, getting your food, uh, tending to your crops, and everybody did it on an individual basis, and there was help and everything like that amongst the communities. So if you want to go back like that, that's probably the best bet. But don't give me this, like, we're going to save the planet and jump in your car you know, the next day and, and take your jet airplane and, and, you know, and all these politicians who live in the mansions with the lights on, and it goes on and on, like, uh, the, can't remember the guy's name there. Uh, but, uh, you know, and electric cars, yeah, that'd be wonderful. I'm down for electric cars. I think if you, if you, uh, you know, put a, put a limit around city saving, when you enter this zone, you have to drive an electric car. We should be doing that. Can you imagine overnight almost, well, within a month, Vancouver, Toronto, all these metropolises, New York, Los Angeles, how clean the air would be. But let's get real, folks. The electric car thing has been squashed because the reality of the planet and the people who run it are the oil people aren't going to let that happen until we squeeze the last drop of oil. All right? There's politics. There's more things at play in power here. So, if you know, and by the way, stop. Like, everybody's running around their hair on fire every time the temperature goes up, like the last couple of days. Well, take the time and look back in the record books, because I've already done that multiple times when I've seen these days happen, and I've heard people running around uh, in mass hysteria, we're going to die in 30 years, and uh, go look at the record books, because there's days that are even warmer than this 100 years ago, 80 years ago. Oh yeah, this, ago. Is, this has nothing to do with global warming. What we're seeing right now, this is not a sign of global warming, but we do know that the temperature on the planet is rising. Right, we right. do know that. Collective temperature, not, hey, it's 8 degrees in January on the 8th of the month. Absolutely. And you know what, Mike? Uh, let's look at the dinosaurs. I talk, Just a little quick side note. I talked to an individual about 20-something years old about a year ago, and we just got in a conversation about this. And I said, do you realize that you had a tropical area in, in Alberta, like across this, this land, there were like dinosaurs? And they went, what, dinosaurs? They really didn't know dinosaurs existed. <laughs> okay, so I'm like, oh, who's teaching these kids? But, yeah, okay, you know what, sure, it's going gonna, it's gonna to rise. But you know what? You can't control it. We can't control the universe we think we can control our destiny but there's been there's been species like the dinosaurs and who knows what else that has vanished off this planet so why do people think that our species is so secure we're not there's too many uncertainties and variables that can happen but if we can stop it don't you want to try like you've said you've you've done a lot bob to try for sure you've done a lot to try but I don't you think that I don't know what it, I guess my question is more what would it take for people to say uh oh we've got to do something and that's why I brought up ah, put it off till 2020 because for businesses it means it costs you more money for people it means it costs you more money ah I don't want to get up 16 hours a day and and sew and hew and do all of those old fashioned things. Right. What it's going to take in a crisis, usually with mankind, because that's that's our nature as a species, until the zero hour. Okay. Until it's like almost too late, then everybody dives in and pulls together. That's it. But there's things that are happening we can't control. Like what I'm saying, Mike, 
is you have to look outside our planet. You got to look in the solar system. You got to look at the sun. You're like our sun's going to burn out in 500 billion years. I ain't going to be around. You're not going to be around. But somebody may be, and it's going to be a real sad day when that happens. Yeah. But you know, but that's the reality. Nothing lasts forever in this universe. So we don't have we have control over certain things. Absolutely, we should do something about that. But what's going to happen? Uh, on a bigger scale, out of our control. At this point in time, we just don't have that control. Well, I mean, we apparently we do have control. Say a, a giant asteroid's heading our way and it's going to hit Earth. Well, we could probably nuke it before it hits Earth. That's a, that, that's an advancement. That's something we can do. But it's, in terms of those asteroids com- coming at us, uh, you know, time after time, you can't control that. You no, might, you no, know. you're right. I mean, there's a lot yeah. of stuff out there, Bob. I really appreciate the conversation. Yeah. Thanks so much. All right, Mike. Take care. Take care. We are going to talk about a Thames Valley District School Board, not course, but semester that is looking completely outside the box. It's not necessarily going to halt global warming, uh, but maybe somebody who takes it comes up with an idea for that because they'll be dealing with things within the environment. We'll find out about it next on London Live on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Bob made some great points in that we've got it really good. How do you go home at the end of the day and not say, "Ah, I think I'll check out what's on my phone. Ah, I think I'll relax in my many polymered Chesterfield and just take it easy. We live in a great time. And for anybody to say, yeah, we got to make some changes to that, that will be fought tooth and nail. It's like saying we could go back and do school the way it used to be done many years ago. No way! Not doing that. Look at all the cool things they're doing now. Let's learn about those, or at least one of them, that is a big one. Because it isn't just a course offered through the Thames Valley District School Board. It's an entire semester. Aaron Much is a learning coordinator in environmental education with Thames Valley School Board and is here to talk to us about the Environmental Leaders Project. Aaron, how are you? I'm well, thanks, Mike. Being back at school, is everything flowing as it should? It's so far so good, yep. <laughs> it's got to be a bit of an adjustment after the kids have been away for two weeks to get them kind of refocused, right? Yeah, but it's really, I think everyone really appreciates routine. So <laughs> people get a little anxious the night before and then they're happy to be back into some regular routine again. Well, we get to talk about something that is anything but routine. If we rewind back to when we were in school, when you showed up, there was one place to be. That was in the classroom. You had times to be there, but you've got some Something with an environmental leaders project that is going to give students an opportunity to not show up inside four walls. What is this all about? Well, we're running a new program for grade 10s in Thames Valley. So our first cohort will actually start this February um, for second semester. And it's a four-credit program where kids are going to earn their credits in civics and careers, uh, English, phys ed, and then an interdisciplinary credit. And they'll get to pull all those together. Um, They won't really know, it won't really seem... Uh, that it's time for each period, as it is in a traditional classroom. We'll be we'll be blending those courses together um, throughout the day, and so they'll get to look at all of those credits through an environmental lens. And so we're going to work with some community partners to do some pretty big projects where the kids get to really have an impact in their local community. Um, so we've got some projects lined up with Upper Thames Conservation Authority. Um, the kids are going to get to lead some younger students who come from some of our elementary students for a day of outdoor learning where. 
these grade 10s will be the ones developing the lesson planning. That, that'll be part of their writing is to develop the lesson plan. Then part of their oral communication skills for English will be that they'll deliver the lesson, uh, maybe a little bit of snowshoeing in the winter and some hiking in the spring um, to pull the phys ed part in. Um, but we're going to really let the students take the lead on, on some of these projects as well, working with the local experts. That's amazing. This, this is still school. Yeah, so it is school, but not in the school. So we'll be running out of our London Environmental Education Centre. Um, Thames Valley has, uh, we're fortunate to have three environmental centres and one's here in London. So the program's open to students who, um, I mean, they can, uh, the students who can apply would be currently in grade nine for next year when they're in second semester of grade 10. Um, and then um, they just need to get themselves to the London Environmental Centre, which is located uh, in the Pond Mills area. Okay. And then this is something that would be, they would, they would kind of go to that spot for school each and every day, as opposed to going to their regular school. That's right. So the, yeah, so we've got it tied to Laurier as the, as kind of the home base school, because that's the geographically the closest um, school to where we are. So they will be our host school. That's where the students will earn their credits through Laurier, but they'll essentially just be shared for that semester from their home school. So they will do the one full semester at the Environmental Centre, um, working on these projects every day as a regular school day. When the semester's finished for grade 11, they'll go back to their, their home school again. The first group that we have, we've got students coming from 11 different high schools in Thames Valley. So um, they'll get to know each other. Kids from all different schools will get to know each other as they work together on these projects. Fantastic. We're talking with Aaron Much, who is the learning coordinator in environmental education with the Thames Valley District School Board. We're seeing more and more of these kinds of things develop, aren't we? Yeah, there's a there's a big push in our board to really look at some innovative learning opportunities for students. Um, we know that the regular model isn't necessarily what works best for everyone, um, and that there's some really creative and exciting ways we can um, offer some learning opportunities for our students. Um, so this is just this is just one uh, from the environmental lens, but there's some other new programs uh, at other schools um, happening where we're bundling credits to to create some neat opportunities, and it gives us that little bit more time uh, without the 75-minute bell going at the end, which can sometimes interrupt that exciting learning process. Have you been able to monitor what any other schools have done with any similar programs to see how they've gone? Yeah, so um, at Saunders, they've run a STEAM program um, where they're incorporating uh, science, technology, engineering, um, and math credits together for grade nines. Um, They've got a similar one at South, a math science double program. Um, At Oak Ridge, they're doing an art and math um, double credit. Uh, Beale has a four-credit STEM program. And then there's a new aviation program that's going to start this year at Montcalm, where students, it's partnering with Fanshawe's aviation program. So, So that one is also open to different students from across Thames Valley to attend. And what do you got feel? a lot of neat stuff going on? Yeah, no doubt. What do you feel this does for students? Well, I think for some kids, um, the having that hands-on experience and and really showing them the opportunity of how they can make an impact and a difference in the community that they live in—that's our hope with this particular program. Um, and connecting them with those community experts who can kind of show them that career path of how to how to how to take their passion and and some skills that they may have build on those skills, and then translate that into a career in the future. And isn't that the end goal anyway? Yeah, that's, that's yeah. pretty good. <laughs> that's our hope.
Aaron Mudge with us, learning coordinator in environmental education with the Thames Valley District School Board. How about for summertime? Is that something that gives students an opportunity to take advantage of things? Thanks. Yeah, summer is a great time to learn outside. Um, a couple years ago, we had our first group of a course called WILD, um, a group of students. And so we, ha- we start online. They, they work uh, in Google Classroom, and they do some planning, some mapping, some leadership development, meal planning, route planning. And then the course culminates um, in a nine-day canoe trip in Quetico Provincial Park, which is two hours west of Thunder Bay. So we take 18 kids, and we fly up to Thunder Bay, and then we take a two-hour coach ride from there and then we do a nine-day canoe trip Uh, and then we come back and they do a final reflection project and so um, that group as well is a a mix of kids from Thames Valley. Um, We really pick a group that reflects the diversity of of our board which makes for a really rich learning environment for the kids to learn from other kids who are different than themselves, uh, which is one of the huge takeaways we get from them every year is how interesting it was to be living with kids who they would never normally have chosen as friends. Um, and then, so that's one huge learning part. And the other um, amazing piece is what they can learn about themselves in a wilderness setting. Um, so it's, it's a joyful experience for the adults involved, but um, really great opportunity for kids who may never have that opportunity otherwise. Uh, the first time we went, I think there were five of them had never been on a plane before. So it was really nice to offer that opportunity to them. Um, and so we're, we're just about to have our third group start that this spring again. Um, and so for both these programs, we have an information night coming up next week on Wednesday evening at the board office. So at 6 o'clock, it's for our uh, grade 10 multi-credit program. And then at 7 o'clock, it's for this wild course where we're, um, we're with a summer summer opportunity. And that's a credit-bearing course as well. So kids get a grade 11 credit for that um, online and on-trip course. I think we've got a lot of people listening right now thinking, I wish this was my school life years ago. This is great stuff. Aaron, best of luck with all of it. Again, the information night comes up when? Wednesday, January 16th at the 10th Valley District School Board Board Office on Dundas um, at 6 o'clock for the multi-credit and 7 o'clock for the wild summer course. Amazing. Keep up the great work. Thanks a lot, Mike. That is Aaron Much from the Thames Valley District School Board. If you are interested in more information and if you have a student at the Thames Valley District School Board, why not? You can visit tvdsb.ca slash help for the multi-credit that Aaron was just talking about. That information session is next Wednesday. Or for that summer course, it's tvdsb.ca slash wild. So tvdsb.ca slash help for the multi-credit and slash wild. For the summer course. That's what school should be about. See? I believe so much in job shadows. If you want to see what it's like to work in whatever industry, then you should find out. If you're thinking of changing jobs at the age of 73, you should call someone in the industry that you're thinking of getting into and you say, can I come and shadow you for a day? I want to see what that's like. And you go in and you think, I had no idea this is what you did. I thought it was a lot better than this. I'm going to stay where I am. Or you look and you go, yeah, this is me. I should have been here 53 years ago. But no time like the present. That is key. And that's what is being offered, in essence, here as part of an entire semester. I love it. Congratulations. Keep it up. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL.
In about 35 minutes, you can head to our 980 CFPL Facebook page and you can watch the Facebook Live of the inductions of Rob Shrimp, Chris Taylor, Tim Taylor, Dave Lowry, Walt McKechnie, and Dennis Marouk into the Don Brankley London Knights Hall of Fame. That'll be on Facebook Live in just about 35 minutes. And then if you're headed to see the Knights in the Guelph Storm tonight at Budweiser Gardens, there may still be a couple of tickets available, by the way, then please be in your seats a little bit early so that you don't miss any of the on-ice induction ceremony that is going to take place. We are about out of time for London Live. A story before we go. In Delaware, over the weekend, a 13-year-old, was up late at night. Now, it wasn't a school night, and he was binge-watching The Flash, and he was told to go to bed because he's only 13. So, I don't know, it got to be midnight, and one of his parents felt he was still up, so they said, would you just go to bed, go to sleep? And he said, yeah, 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 I'll go to sleep. And then he kept binge-watching The Flash. Well, an hour or two or an episode or two later, a fire broke out in his house. And because he was awake, he noticed it or heard the smoke alarms, whatever it was, he was able to run around and get his entire family and the pets out of the house. Now, the house sustained pretty serious damage, but at the same time, staying up late to watch The Flash may have saved some lives, courtesy of that 13-year-old. That's our story before we go. Again, Facebook Live in just about 33 minutes now, and you will see those inductions. The first ever into the Don Brankley London Knights Hall of Fame. Thanks to Winmar for all their support, your restoration specialist. Coming up next, we will have news with Jacqueline LaBelle. Thanks to Matt McKinnis for his help today. You're listening to Global News Radio, 980 CFPL.